From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, September 27th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, Saudi Arabia's first ambassador to Palestine's arrived in the West Bank. Canada's parliamentary speakers resigned amid a scandal involving a Nazi war veteran. And Thailand's welcoming Chinese tourists under a new visa-free policy. In business, China's transportation network is gearing up for a holiday travel rush. In sports, China's youngest gold medalist at the Asian Games. In culture and entertainment, popular art performances and cultural elements at the Games in Hangzhou. Now the day's top stories. The first Saudi ambassador to Palestine's arrived in the West Bank and met Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Naif bin Bandar al-Suderi was appointed last month. He presented his credentials to fulfill his role as the non-resident ambassador and non-resident consul general in Jerusalem to the Palestinians. Abbas says the appointment of the Saudi ambassador will strengthen bilateral ties. The ambassador says Riyadh hopes to strengthen relations in all fields with Palestine, and it supports the just cause of the Palestinian people. Akram al-Satri is in Gaza with more. The uh, Saudi delegation that came to Gaza is a political delegation. The Palestinian Authority in particular sees that movement as a movement, or as a move to try to justify the coming compromises when it comes to the recognition of Israel and when it comes to the normalized relationships with Israel. The Palestinian leadership has been actively engaging in talks, not only with the Saudis, but with also some other regional powers and international powers for the sake of making sure that the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority would benefit something out of that process that is being finalized in the meantime between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They want the Saudis to continue and resume the generous support they were providing for the infrastructure in Gaza. And this new approach by the Palestinian Authority led eventually to that ambassador coming to 
the uh, President Mahmoud Abbas and preparing for the resumption of the uh, Saudi political support for the Palestinians. With the Saudi ambassador coming to Ramallah and being nominated also as a general consulate in Jerusalem, that is indicative of the nature of the uh, changes that are going to take place. A recognition is coming. Final steps are being taken now in Ramallah, Tel Aviv and Riyadh. That was Akram al-Satri reporting on Saudi Arabia-Palestine ties. Meantime, Israel's tourism minister, Haim Katz, has traveled to Saudi Arabia to attend a UN conference. It's the first time that an Israeli cabinet minister is heading an official delegation in Riyadh. The health departments in Nineveh province, Iraq, says more than 110 people are dead in a fire at a wedding party. Nearly 200 others were injured. Local media say the fire ripped through a large events hall in the northeastern region. Local TV news suggests fireworks at the venue may have sparked that blaze. Preliminary er, information indicates the building was made of highly inflammable construction materials that are illegal in the country. The commander of Russia's Black Sea fleets uh, that Ukraine claims was killed has attended a meeting via video. Uh, Kiev alleged that Admiral Viktor Sokolov died in an attack last week. Dasha Chernyshova reports. Russia's defense ministry has shown the commander of the Black Sea fleet attending the ministry's video conference on Tuesday. When asked about Admiral Viktor Sokolov, the Kremlin did not comment, saying it had no report regarding the issue from the defense ministry. The Russian Ministry of Defense said it shot down five Ukrainian missiles last Friday, but the historic building of the fleet headquarters caught fire. Russia reported one serviceman was missing as a result of the attack. In Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu claimed Tuesday that to date this month Russian forces have killed more than 17,000 Ukrainian soldiers and destroyed 2,700 pieces of military equipment. Shoigu also accused the U.S. and its allies of taking new steps to contain Russia and China in the international arena. Commenting on the arrival of American Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Paskov acknowledged they are serious weapons, but said Western-supplied equipment will not change the course of Russia's special military operation. That was Dasha Chernyshova in Moscow. Armenia's health ministry says 125 people are dead in Monday's explosion and fire at a fuel depot in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. The bodies have been transported to Armenia. Hundreds of others were burnt in the blast. It remains a challenge to deliver medical assistance to this many victims. Armenia says more than 28,000 people have crossed into the country from Nagorno-Karabakh. An exodus from the region began after Azerbaijan launched an operation last week, Jim Spellman reports. By car and on foot, ethnic Armenians have been streaming across the Armenian border after Azerbaijani troops appear to have taken control of the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. It was a nightmare. There were no words to describe. The village was heavily shelled. Almost no one is left in the village. Most people have been evacuated. And we are now here. The region has seen clashes dating back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Last week, Azerbaijani troops appear to have taken control of the region after carrying out a military operation. Russia brokered a ceasefire that went into effect last Wednesday. Russian peacekeepers remain on the ground. Last week at the UN, China called for negotiations and a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Armenia and Azerbaijan are neighbors that cannot be moved away from each other. 
Resolving disputes through dialogue and consultation serves the fundamental interests of the two countries and is conducive to jointly safeguarding regional peace and stability. The U.S. is calling for an international mission to Nagorno-Karabakh to ensure stability. That was Jim Spellman reporting. The U.S. Senate's released a short-term funding bill to stop the government from shutting down within a few days. The move aims to keep money flowing until November the 7th to give Congress more time to ink a larger agreement. The bill includes $4.5 billion in aid to Ukraine and $6 billion in emergency FEMA funding for disaster relief. The Republican-controlled House of Representatives is planning to push its own partisan bill that's unlikely to win support in the Democratic-majority Senate. Coming up, Canada's parliamentary speaker resigns in scandal. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. It's at uh, eight minutes past the hour now, and the Speaker of Canada's Parliament's resigned after publicly paying tribute to a Ukrainian veteran who fought for the Nazis during World War II. During a visit to Parliament by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last week, Anthony Rhoda invited Yaroslav Hunka and introduced him as a war hero who fought for the first Ukrainian division. Well, that division was a voluntary unit under the command of the Nazis. Jewish advocacy groups and lawmakers have been uh, pressuring Rota to step down, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the remarks embarrassing. United Nations General Assembly annual debate has concluded. World leaders gathered in New York to discuss issues ranging from development, climate, and the conflict in Ukraine. Karina Mitchell looks back on some of the highlights. The 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly opened against a backdrop of a world facing a host of geopolitical, economic, and humanitarian crises. In his opening remarks, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres reiterated calls for a more modern U.N., urging nations to unite, saying our world needs statesmanship, not gamesmanship and gridlock. The world has changed. Our institutions have not. We cannot effectively address problems as they are if institutions do not reflect the world as it is. The theme of the general debate this year was rebuilding trust and reigniting global solidarity, accelerating action on the 2030 agenda and its sustainable development goals with the aim of generating greater peace, prosperity, progress and sustainability for all. The conflict in Ukraine was high on the agenda. U.S. President Joe Biden made his case that the world must stand behind Ukraine, saying, quote, if we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared in person and accused Russia of weaponizing everything from food to energy. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov forcefully denounced the U.S. and the West, saying they fuel conflict instead of promoting a true world order, but he barely mentioned Ukraine. Chinese Vice President Han Zheng made clear to the Assembly that a ceasefire and peace talks are the only way forward to end Russia-Ukraine tensions. On foreign policy, the vice president said China is committed to opening up itself wider to the world, but insisted on China's commitment to safeguarding its sovereign control. Han also called for global governance to be more just and equitable. Both the U.S. and China avoided harsh criticism of one another at a time of rising tensions. Biden said the U.S. seeks to manage competition between the two nations and avoid conflict. 
Climate was another major area of discussion as the world faced record-shattering heat, massive floods, and raging wildfires this summer. Colombia's president warning that the climate crisis has exacerbated the number of climate refugees. He warned their numbers could reach 3 billion in the next 50 years. As this year's session concludes, it remains to be seen how many of the goals and pledges member nations follow through on. That is, many worry whether the United Nations still holds the same cachet it once did in an ever more fragmented world. That was Karina Mitchell in New York. Costa Rica has declared a state of emergency as the number of migrants passing through the Central American nation has risen sharply. More than 60,000 people have passed through a Costa Rican border town shared with Panama this month. The leaders of Costa Rica and Panama will meet next month for discussions on the migrant crisis. Many migrants are crossing Costa Rica on their way to Mexico and eventually the United States. A new wave of migrants has swarmed the U.S.-Mexico border. Tony Waterman was at Eagle Pass, Texas earlier in the day. Well, we've seen a steady stream of people coming across the Rio Grande River. They are crossing through these very strong currents to get over to the U.S., up a steep embankment, and then climbing over very dense, very sharp razor wire. These are just some of the 10,000 asylum seekers that have crossed into Eagle Pass in uh, the last week. Part of this fresh surge in migration, there had been a lull in the number of border crossings after a policy allowing officials to turn these migrants away at the border was lifted back in May. Speaking to some of these migrants on the ground, they're saying, you know, the app that we are supposed to be using to make our immigration appointments, it's not working. We can't get these appointments. There are so limited. Well, there are indications that this could actually be just the tip of the iceberg. Also, there are record numbers of people going through the Darien Gap. This is this very dangerous jungle region that separates South America from Panama, and it's really a gateway for South American migrants to make their way to the United States. So there is very much the indication that things could be getting worse in the coming days and weeks. That was Tony Waterman reporting. Uh, New York judges found former U.S. President Donald Trump liable for fraud in his family business. The ruling said Trump and his adult sons, together with other defendants, made up valuations and inflated Trump's net worth uh, to suit their business needs. The judge ordered the cancellation of certificates that uh, allowed some of Trump's businesses to operate in New York. The decision will make it easier for State Attorney General Letitia James to establish damages at an October 2nd trial. James sued Trump a year ago, accusing him of lying for a decade about asset values and his net worth to defraud banks and insurers into providing better terms. Uh, Trump's called uh, this part, uh, or rather he's called this part of a politically motivated witch hunt, and he's sued to delay the trial. Morocco's UN ambassadors thanked world leaders for their support following the devastating earthquake earlier this month. I'd like to thank them for their readiness to stand with my country to fight the repercussions of this natural disaster. The Kingdom of Morocco has faced the repercussions of this earthquake. We face those repercussions with determination, seriousness and solidarity, and these are the values of Morocco. Omar Halali has also told the UN General Assembly that the earthquake led to the deaths of 3,000 people and injured 5,700 others. He also slammed neighboring Algeria over the situation in the Western Sahara. The Western Sahara issue is at the heart of friction between Morocco and Algeria, whose borders have been closed since 1994. 
The Asian Infrastructure Investment Banks approved three new member states uh, during its meeting in Egypt. El Salvador, the Solomon Islands, and Tanzania enlarged the AIIB to 109 members. They'll officially join on depositing the first capital investment. The AIIB president says it'll support the bank's collective mission to finance infrastructure. Yasser Hakim spoke with Vice President Ludger Schuknecht at the uh, China headquartered uh, lender. They began with the significance of having the bank's uh, meeting in Africa for the first time. To have this first meeting in Egypt is, I think, very strong symbol also of our interest in uh, promoting connectivity in the world. Egypt is at the border of Africa and Asia. You know, Asia is, we are in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is in Asia. We just came from Cairo, which is in Africa. It stands for our bank's role in promoting sustainable infrastructure in a challenging world uh, today. You have invested as a bank uh, over $44 billion uh, in financing since 2016. What are the major projects and what kind of criteria do you choose, especially for non-Asian countries? The criteria for this is that the projects have to be of high quality, they have to be of high standards, and then we can finance Asian and non-Asian countries. So we have done a couple of projects in Africa, in Latin America in the past, and we expect to have such a financing agenda also going forward in Africa, here in Egypt, but also beyond. What are the objectives that you want to achieve? To bring together uh, and partnering with other multilateral development banks, partnering with philanthropic organizations, partnering with the private sector so that we can mobilize private capital to promote climate finance and we also want there to be innovation. Innovation in technologies, innovation in financial products. That's the role of an MDB and especially the AIIB. That was the vice president of the AIIB on financing infrastructure development and innovation. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, Thailand's new visa-free policy for Chinese tourists. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. At 17 minutes past the hour. Business in Thailand is welcoming the return of Chinese tourists under a new visa-free policy. Thailand recently scrapped visa requirements for Chinese travelers in an attempt to attract more visitors from one of the most important sources of tourism. Dusita Saokao has more. Cruising along the River of Kings, which divides ancient Thailand from the present-day urban metropolis. The gentle river breeze while marveling at the city's shimmering lights as the delightful aromas of Thai cuisine fills the air. Its rich culture, history and flavors all rolled into one. This is Bangkok in a bottle. During the pandemic years, the cruisers stopped. The river was empty waiting for the day when all this would come to life once again. That day came when China reopened its borders in early 2023, and they single-handedly revived Pichit's cruise business, Grand Pearl. And now, with a visa-free policy, it's smooth sailing ahead through the once rough waters. After COVID-19, we received international tourists from all over the world for three full months. When international tourism declined in February, the influx of Chinese visitors greatly softened the blow. It was like a gift from God. 
If more Chinese tourists come, I will have two more vessels ready. I will be able to clear my debt in three years. Before the pandemic, around 11 million Chinese tourists made up nearly a third of Thailand's 40 million foreign visitors. But the first half of this year has seen only around 1.4 million Chinese tourists. With concerns that the numbers may not reach the initial target of 5 million Chinese visitors this year, a visa-free policy is now in place, with hopes that it will encourage an influx of visitors from China, as well as help prop up the tourism industry. Over at Bangkok's Suwanapum Airport, one of the first visa-free groups of travellers coming from Shanghai disembarks the plane. They were greeted like celebrities, with welcome banners, flowers, gifts and a scrum of reporters and photographers. I think everything is easy because we just go to the all-passport parts and we just make it like two minutes or three minutes thing. It speaks volumes of the importance of this key market and a new government pinning hopes on the recovery of the country's tourism industry as a top economic priority. The government and everyone here have played their part to make today a significant one for Thailand. I hope that there will be more ways to boost the economy under the policies of this government. And it's all hands on deck as international airports across the country get ready for the surge in travelers ahead of the high season. From the moment visa-free travel for Chinese tourists begins, we will make sure there are enough flights available. We will make the process as smooth as possible upon their arrival at Suwanapum Airport. We think the number of Chinese tourists will increase to 700,000 bringing the total number of visitors this year to around 4.2 million. There's high hopes, there's high expectations as Thailand banks on tourism. That was Tucida Sakao reporting from Bangkok. The China-aided headquarters building for the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention is now up and running in Addis Ababa. The project under the Belt and Road Initiative has uh, come to represent a milestone in China-Africa public health cooperation. Huang Yue visited the new CDC facility in Ethiopia. The bustling city of Addis Ababa now has a new landmark, the new headquarters of the Africa CDC. The phase one project of the new headquarters of the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention was officially inaugurated in January this year. The facility includes administrative offices, an emergency response center, an information center, and advanced biological laboratories. What you are seeing now is a biological safety third-level laboratory, which is the first of its kind in Africa, and there are two such labs in the new headquarters. In addition, there are six second-level labs, which can greatly help improve the level of medical research in Africa. The project was first announced in 2018 during the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation in Beijing. Breaking ground in late 2020, the construction of the building coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic, which posed great challenges to the work. But after 25 months, the phase one project of the building was successfully completed and has been handed over to the African side. The futuristic building embodies the shared aspirations of China and Africa to develop their partnership as evidenced by the collaborative efforts of the two countries to improve their people's well-being. The newly built headquarters exemplifies the benefits of China-Africa health cooperation. 
As the first Pan-African Center of Disease Control and Prevention, the new headquarters is expected to help the continent respond faster to emergencies and better benefit African people. There's a huge screen here which can display the map of Africa and the graphs of different diseases such as COVID-19, Ebola, monkeypox, and dengue. When it's officially put into use, it can fortify Africa's public health system and capacity. The Africa CDC staff have settled into their new offices. In a state-of-the-art headquarters is also expecting scientists and experts from all over the world to join forces in advancing the continent's public health. The energy inspires the confidence that with the new CDC headquarters, the African continent will be better placed to fill in any gaps in public health. That was Huang Yue at the African CDC headquarters in Addis Ababa. A convenience and time-saving have become important factors in what people choose to eat. In China, ready-made meals are a growing trend as people who don't have much time to cook find a solution. Wang Fei spoke with some people in the business to find out more about the meals that are readily available in markets. The start of a long line of fish processing, with workers sorting the catch by size to meet the needs of different buyers. When pandemic restrictions were first lifted, people flocked to restaurants, leading to a surge in orders for our pre-made packages. These packages help restaurants save costs and speed up their service. Currently, we are operating at full capacity. We're constructing a new factory with smart machines, which should increase our daily output to 500,000 kilos. Over 200 startups entered the pre-made food sector in Boshan last year, drawn by market potential and government support. Some business owners also attribute their confidence to the recent pro-business stance of the country's top leadership. In Guangzhou, Alibaba's supermarket chain Freshipo is expanding its selection of ready-made meal options, catering to the growing appetite of young professionals and busy parents. Ready meals make up 7 to 80 percent of my diet. Leaving alone, there's often limited fresh food at the wet markets by the time I leave work. It's convenient. As our living standards improve, we don't mind spending money to save time. The pre-made foods market in China is projected to reach 144 billion U.S. dollars by 2026. But such products still face challenges in terms of freshness, taste and diversity. Freshipo hopes to address some of these pressure points through an industry alliance. Collaborating with agricultural companies allows us to source better ingredients. Centralized kitchens can help improve production standards, and universities can explore how to make frozen food taste as good as fresh. While the return of restaurants may slow the growth of retail food packages, many industry insiders believe the rising trend of ready-made meals is here to stay. That was Huang Fei reporting. The devastating floods that swept through Libya have revealed new structures of an ancient Greek city near Derna. The city of Cyrene was founded in 631 BC, and it witnessed the height of its prosperity in the 4th century BC. The city is distinguished by its Greek baths and temples. Dr. Ahmed Issa at Omar al-Mukhtar University is calling for the formation of a national committee to classify the new archaeological monuments. After we recover from the effects of this disaster and the loss of people, we must also pay attention to the archaeological site and a national committee composed of experts should be formed so that these newly appeared archaeological monuments are classified and a plan should be drawn up to rehabilitate the site. 
Figures from the United Nations and the Libyan Red Crescent suggest that more than 11,000 people are dead and 10,000 others missing in the flooding. The astronaut who holds the U.S. record for the longest space flight comes back to Earth from the International Space Station on Wednesday. NASA's Frank Rubio and two Russian astronauts have spent 371 days in space. Before the trio undocked from the ISS, they handed over the symbolic key to the station to the new commander. Andreas Mogensen from the European Space Agency took over the baton. It's one thing to launch to space knowing that you're going to be up here for a year. It's a completely different thing for you and your families to find out towards the end of your six-month mission that you're going to be spending an additional six months in space. Rubio and the other crew members were scheduled to return six months ago. Their journey back was uh, delayed after a leak was found in their spacecraft. For the first time in over a decade, all beaches in the Brazilian city uh, of Rio de Janeiro and also uh, Natore are, are suitable for swimming. Fisherman uh, Abel, uh, Abel de Silva says things are indeed getting better. When I started fishing here, the beach was neither bad nor good, but then it became dirty. Now it's getting better. This used to be unsuitable for swimming. No one came here. Now people are coming back. In the past, entire beaches in the area were deemed unsuitable to swim in. And now, all beaches have swimmable sections. The authorities attribute the improvements to recent sanitation works as well as the lack of rainfall. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Checking the forecast ahead of the break and uh, Beijing's down to 13 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's sunny in 26 Celsius. Chongqing's at 22 this evening, then moderate rainfall in 27 degrees. Lass is down to 8 overnight, then cloudy in 23. Hong Kong dips to 27 degrees. It'll see showers in 31 tomorrow. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 23 overnight. A slight rainfall in 32 on Thursday. Islamabad 17 this evening, then sunny skies in 32. Bangkok's at 25 overnight, a light rainfall in 31 on Thursday. In Africa, Nairobi's getting a slight rain in 26 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 16 this evening, then a light rainfall and 22. Auckland's 11 overnight, then some uh, rainfall in 15. Port Vila, a slight rain and 27 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, Saudi Arabia's first ambassador to Palestine's issue, or rather has arrived in the West Bank. Canada's parliamentary speakers resigned amid a scandal involving a Nazi war veteran. And Thailand's welcoming Chinese tourists under a new visa-free policy. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好,我的中文一点点. or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了,我是本地人. There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, still to come. In business, China's transportation network is gearing up for a holiday travel rush. In sports, China's youngest gold medalist at the Asian Games. 
in culture and entertainment, popular art performances, and cultural elements at those games in Hangzhou. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with today's headline news, here's Zhu Tianlu. Thank you, Shane. An official from the Chinese mainland has accused the Democratic Progressive Party authorities of standing on the wrong side of history and against the interests of the people of Taiwan. Zhu Fenglian from the State Council's Taiwan Affairs Office said that DPP authorities colluding with the anti-China forces in the United States and other Western countries are being used as political pawns. The One China principle is the consensus of the international community. The Chinese people's just cause of opposing Taiwan independence, secessionist activities and striving for national reunification has been increasingly widely understood and supported by the international community. The DPP authorities' willingness to act as pawns of Western anti-China forces and the United States' use of Taiwan to control China to interfere in China's internal affairs are increasingly being seen by more people of insight. The mainland official also said DPP authorities released a so-called defense report with ulterior motives. The document came out on the same day that the central government unveiled a plan to build a demonstration zone for integrated development between the mainland and Taiwan earlier this month. Israeli tourism minister Haim Katz has traveled to Saudi Arabia to attend a United Nations conference. It's the first time that an Israeli cabinet member is heading an official delegation to Riyadh. Katz's two-day trip comes amid talks between the two countries to normalize ties. Last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said a normalization deal is within reach. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman confirmed the rapprochement while stressing the welfare of Palestinians remains an issue. Meanwhile, the first Saudi ambassador to Palestine has arrived in the West Bank and met Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Naif bin Bandar al-Sudari says Riyadh hopes to strengthen relations in all fields with Palestine. The Palestinian president says the appointment of the Saudi ambassador will strengthen bilateral ties. The United Nations General Assembly, the high-level meeting that brings world leaders together at UN headquarters in New York, is coming to a close. Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed says the gathering helped further the sustainable development goals. Uh, For the SDG part of this, it was a summit of hope. I think that we have still managed uh, to give that to to the many um, out there and to message that. Uh, We've got seven years to get the SDGs. We did say all the way through this that, you know, this is done in the second half. Um, Many quoted uh, that and many have come back to us to say next steps. and, And many, of course, are already continuing with that as they go back. The international body adopted 17 sustainable development goals in 2015, including poverty eradication and zero hunger. The UN Secretary General's 2023 SDGs report shows about 12% of targets are on track, while more than half are moderately or severely off track. Spain's conservative opposition leader has launched a long-shot bid to form a government. It comes after a July election in which no party won a majority. Alberto Fidro People's Party won the most seats in the election, but has so far failed to cobble together enough votes for a parliamentary majority. Fidro says he could have struck a deal with the Catalan separatist party, but was not willing to pay the price. No paso por renunciar a la igualdad de los españoles. I have within my reach enough votes to be prime minister, but I would not accept to pay the price they are demanding.
The People's Party has tried to make up for the vote shortfall by asking for support from socialist deputies. Local media say there are no signs that any members of parliament are willing to betray their own party. Meanwhile, acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is considering an amnesty law for exiled Catalan leaders who had sought independence. He will likely have to grant their return if he wants to secure another four-year mandate. People have taken to the streets in Madrid in protest. California is set to double the taxes on guns and ammunition and use the money to pay for more security at public schools. California Governor Kevin Newsom says it is the modest investment in reducing costs related to gun violence. Uh, this is not a general income tax, not a corporate tax. This is not, uh, this is a, from my perspective, more of a sin tax uh, where there's a cause and effect and justification. Uh, the health-related costs, the cost borne by the taxpayers uh, for gun violence is off the charts. Any fiscal conservative uh, should be making that case. Um, the cost of prosecution, defense, the cost of incarceration of people involved in gun violence is, is extraordinary. The federal government already taxes the sale of guns and ammunition at either 10 or 11 percent, depending on the type of gun. The law Newsom signed adds another 11 percent tax on top of that. California has some of the lowest gun death rates in the U.S. Thank you very much for the update. That's Zhu Tianlu. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's transportation network is gearing up for a holiday travel rush. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. 37 past the hour now. Turning to business and stock markets on the Chinese mainland finish higher on Wednesday. Timothy Pope has more. Uh, Asia has definitely got an early boost from the release of the latest Chinese industrial profits data, which showed things uh, starting to pick up in August, uh, with the pace of declines narrowing appreciably over the first eight months of the year. Uh, they also showed a more than 17% jump last month compared with August of 2022. Now, that sent the Shanghai Composite up, uh, but uh, some of the early gains faded by the end of the session, and the index closed uh, just two-tenths of 1% higher. There was also some more positive sentiment around after a statement from the People's Bank of China uh, saying that it's going to be uh, precise and forceful with uh, monetary policy to support what it described as the uh, economic recovery's improving momentum. Uh, Industrial and energy stocks rose with uh, gains for both fossil fuel firms and new energy companies. Uh, Longji Green Energy, uh, a top solar firm, uh, added more than 6% with the other gains for Arctic Solar and Ico Solar. Uh, foreign investors were also continuing to uh, buy again on the uh, Stock Connect links with Hong Kong. They had net bought more than 3 billion yuan worth of A shares uh, just before the uh, lunchtime trading break. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was up over 8 tenths of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei gained nearly 2 tenths of a percent. 
China's transportation systems gearing up to welcome millions of travelers during the eight-day National Day mid- uh, and Mid-Autumn uh, Festival holiday. A China State Railway Group says it expects to transport 190 million passengers during the 12-day travel rush starting on Wednesday. To meet the surging demand, the State Railway Group has increased its seating capacity by more than 18% compared with the same period of 2019. In the meantime, international travel from or to and from China will likely see a sharp rebound. The National Immigration Administration forecasts 1.6 million entries and exits on a daily basis. That's three times the number in the same period of last year. A German business leader says the Chinese market remains attractive to foreign investment despite reports in the Western media about the performance of the world's second largest economy. Michael Schumann's the chairman of the board of the German Federal Association for Business Development and Foreign Trade, and he says he's not heard of any German companies planning to leave China. I started my my itinerary almost in Shenyang, going to BMW first. Talked to many German, um, you know, hidden champions that uh, have set up in China, and uh, also to young startups. And uh, I didn't hear from one that they were thinking or considering to leave the country. On the contrary, um, you know, mostly had either just finished new production lines or are planning to expand their investment. According to a report from China International Capital Corporation, foreign capital takes up 3.7% of the country's A-share market and about 8.8% of the free market value as of mid-year. Official data shows that investment from the U.S. and the EU reached 86 billion yuan, or roughly 12 billion U.S. dollars in 2022, and that was up nearly 16% from 2018. China's recently granted approved destination status to Saudi Arabia. The bilateral agreement allows Chinese citizens to travel to Saudi in group tours and facilities across, or rather and it facilitates access to the kingdom. Leo Jashin sat down with Fahd Hamadadin of the Saudi Tourism Authority to ask about Saudi Arabia's tourism ambitions and preparations. So Saudi Arabia has been included in China's ADS list and how will this approved destination status help promote Saudi's tourism? ADS is very important because it's a statement, a statement of trust between two friendly governments. The relationship between Saudi and China has never been better. Today, China is our number one trading partner. Second, it is the statement of readiness. To get ADS, we had to be ready from accessibility and ease of visa. Our visa platform today offers electronic visas to all Chinese. Air connectivity, we are going to hit in January around 300,000 seats direct to Saudi Arabia. You know, just five months ago, we had 1,500 seats a week. Payment gateways, uh, Union Pay, we're now in uh, MOUs with Alipay. So we're going to make sure that the whole journey is ready for uh, Chinese travelers. October marks the best season to travel. A large number of Chinese are making their travel plans uh, in the middle of the Mid-Autumn Festival as well as Chinese National Day holiday. So how will Saudi Arabia make plans to attract Chinese tourists in the upcoming month? We are expected to launch the largest initiative for a new destination that ever happened in, in, in China. Today, we are in contracts and partnerships with 700 of our trade partners. Airlines, content creators, service providers, WeChat, and uh, the mini program on, uh, on WeChat 
is all going to be in place. And just like you visited uh, Jeddah and you were spoken to uh, in Mandarin by Saudis, we are now educating people uh, in uh, Mandarin in schools because we believe this land of mystical Arabia has a lot to offer. And we think with the entertainment program that we have in this season starting October, we have a lot to delight Chinese travelers. That was Fahd Hamadadan, CEO of the Saudi Tourism Authority. Multiple foreign institutions have expressed optimism about the A-shares market denominated in the Chinese yuan and China's economic growth this year. Goldman Sachs' latest research report predicts that China's economic growth will gradually pick up from a 3.2% rate in the second quarter to 5% in the fourth quarter. According to the Goldman Sachs forecast, the country's full-year growth is expected to be 5.4%. J.P. Morgan Chase upgraded its forecast for the China GDP growth by 0 0.2 percentage points to 5 percent. T.S. Lombard says the company's upgraded its ratings for Chinese stocks because the country's equities are continuing to improve. It also expressed optimism about China's fourth quarter economic performance and the government's stimulus measures. China's capital markets continue to attract global investors as more than 5,000 companies are now listed on the A-share exchanges. Total market capitalization surpassed 85 trillion yuan or around 12 trillion U.S. dollars. Zhang Shishuan spoke with several industry insiders about what keeps attracting the investors. Last Friday saw an uptick in overseas buying of A-shares via the stock connect links between Shanghai, Shenzhen and Hong Kong leading to a net inflow of overseas capital of almost 7.5 billion yuan. Media, banking, automobiles and electronics were among the sectors attracting foreign funds. And while the recent trend has been towards foreign investors pulling their money out of Chinese mainland equities, experts say recovery trends remain strong over the long run. China's core industry, the manufacturing sector, is the main focus for foreign investors firms like us. Over the midterm, we also have strong confidence in sectors like pharmaceuticals and consumption, which play key roles in boosting China's domestic demand, and we are maintaining a relatively heavyweight position there. As a foreign invested asset manager, we want to focus more on the things in which China is relatively competitive in global industries. And of course the population of 1.4 billion provides a huge market, which we foresee will remain for another 20 or 50 years. Having been in a mainland market for almost 30 years, UK headquartered Schroders just this year established a wholly foreign-owned public fund management company here. We have observed many opportunities for excess returns in the Chinese stock market, namely the alpha investment that the asset management industry refers to. From a global asset management perspective, China has become a highly attractive market considering its highly overall savings rate and the low pension savings rate per capita, together with the demographic trends as well as pension and wealth management demands. Last year, 428 companies made their IPO debuts on the A-share markets. The China Securities Regulatory Commission reports that last year, A-share listed companies in general showed good resilience, and that in particular tech firms saw high growth and high R&D investment. High-tech manufacturing firms on the Asia market saw revenue grow 14.6% last year. That was Zhang Shishuan reporting. Well, China's taken steps to ensure supplies of vegetables and uh, stable vegetable prices ahead of the Mid-Autumn Festival and National Day. Local governments across the country are helping farmers with planting, storage and transportation. 
Albay's produces 20,000 kilograms of vegetables every day, which are supplied to the markets in the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay area. We have increased daily transportation from 350 to 400 trips. More than 400 logistics drivers have been arranged to work during the holiday, enhancing both storage and transportation capacity. Officials are also moving to guarantee supplies and、uh, price stability of other major agricultural products. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, China's youngest gold medalist at the Asian Games. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related: the hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. At、uh, 47 minutes past the hour, turning to sports in the skateboarding events, 13-year-old Sui Chengxi pocketed the women's street skateboarding title. Her teammate、uh, Zhang Wenhui claimed the silver. Result means that Sway's become China's youngest gold medalist at the Asian Games.、Uh, meantime, Liu Zhengqi, Wu Yunxuan, and Hanshu won the title in the men's skeet team competition. In sailing, China claimed six out of fourteen golds. And with more from the games, we're now joined live with Brandon Yates.、Uh, good evening, and、uh, first of all,、uh, what did you make of the performances of the Chinese tennis players? Hi Shane. Yes, we saw two of China's biggest tennis stars in action today, and they both pulled off victories. Although it must be said that their performances were far from perfect. We'll start with Zhang Qinwen, and she did manage to win her game eventually quite comfortably. She struggled a bit in the first set; her serve was a bit all over the place, and she also struggled with her opponent's backhand. But ultimately, she managed to fight back and delivered a really strong performance in the second set. Even though she did win the first set, but overall. Um, she definitely improved in that second set and went on to claim a relatively comfortable victory. And then into the men's section, and Zhang Jinwen was also、um, Zhang Zhujian, excuse me, was also pretty impressive in his victory. Also struggled in the first set and eventually went down in the first set. And he definitely struggled to control the power of his own forehand, and he also made far too many unforced errors. But then he managed to tidy things up and claim a victory. Uh, in the second and the third set, so two impressive victories. But I think there's definitely still work to be done for both of them as they move into the semi-finals.、Uh, what action do you want to、uh, watch tomorrow, and、uh, what do you think the highlights might be? Yeah, there's a lot going on tomorrow. Myself and Yang Guang are definitely spoiled for choice in terms of all of the sporting action that's happening at the Hangzhou Asian Games. But we will be heading to the swimming. Where we will see, I'm sure, continued dominance from Team China, but we'll be keeping our eyes on the superstar Zhang Yufei, of course, the Olympic champion. We're hoping to catch up with her and also see an impressive performance from her in the pool. And then in esports, there's going to be a League of Legends clash between two massive rivals, China and South Korea. So that should be very entertaining to watch indeed. Team China are also in action in women's football, and we know that. The women's football team have been performing、uh, well, very well actually. In one game, they pulled off a massive 16-0 win. I believe it was against Mongolia.、Um, and we will also see action in basketball from Team China. So I would say those are probably 
the biggest highlights coming from Hangzhou. Right, thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates reporting in Hangzhou for the Asian Games. And uh, Wushu is a non-Olympic event at the Asian Games in Hangzhou. The sport has deep roots in Asian culture. Wushu has gained overseas appeal over the years and now sees many uh, foreign athletes practicing. A young Guang went to the Tai Chi sword competition at the Games. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful is how Japanese athlete Shiho Saito described the sport of Tai Chi Jian, one of the disciplines in Wushu. Tai Chi Jian is a straight two-edged sword used in the training of Tai Chi. The event involves a routine sequence of slow but high-disciplined movements, with the athlete holding the sword amid soothing background music. Tai Chi Jian athlete Agathe Wong from the Philippines is participating in her second Asian Games. Wong started to practice Tai Chi Jian when she was eight years old after a coach discovered her potential in the sport from a school class. She says she has benefited a lot from the sports and the mental aspect of her life. I love it a lot because it's a very difficult sport and I like it when um, I'm always put under pressure and I like um, how hard it is. I think the best part is really just um, you have to really be controlled even when you're really nervous. So it really trains my um, self-control and my discipline. Tai Chi Jian is a common exercise in China where many elderly people practice for physical and mental health purposes. Now, the sport has also made more appearance in campus and schools not only in China but many Southeast Asian countries. 17-year-old Singaporean player Zeni Law says apart from attending competitions, Tai Chi Jian has also become a big part in her school life. Um, I like it because the movement and the song is ever-changing and um, the freestyle Tai Chi Chuan and Tai Chi Jian is catered to your own type of style. So you can do anything that is at an advantage of yourself to set um, yourself from other athletes apart. Because I'm in a Singapore sports school, so whenever there is the opportunity, I would take part in um, events in my school, like Teachers' Day, you know, Youth Day, um, any kind of festival events. I'll take part in performing in it, and I find great joy in it. As a sport now commonly practiced across the continent, Tang Chi Jian is also competed at East Asian Games and the Southeast Asian Games. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Yang Guang from the Hangzhou Asian Games. Organizers have named New York Liberty forward Brianna Stewart as WNBA Most Valuable Player. It's the second time for Stewart to win that title. The 29-year-old delivered a dominant season that saw her lead the team to a franchise-best 32-8 record. Uh, rather, it's her seventh uh, WNBA season. The two-time finals MVP finished with a career-best average of 23 points per game. In La Liga, Barcelona was held to a two-all draw by Mallorca. Mallorca took an early lead in the seventh minute, but Barcelona equalized in the 40th. Mallorca retook the lead minutes later. Barcelona equalized it in the second half. In another matchup, uh, Sevilla regained their form against Almira. Uh, Sevilla had a 2-0 lead with the, within the first seven minutes before extending that lead to 4-0 in the 50th. Juventus beat Lecce 1-0 in Serie A. Juventus controlled most of the match before scoring in the 57th minute. Uh, with the victory, Juventus climbed to second place with 13 points in there, one point ahead of AC Milan. And that's your sports update coming up in culture and entertainment, popular art performances and cultural elements at the games in Hangzhou. The Beijing Hour. 
Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. Fifty-four minutes past the hour, turning to culture and entertainment. Well, Chinese cultural fairs, art performances, and art pieces are gaining popularity among athletes at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Many foreign athletes have gathered at a cultural fair in the athletes' village to try bamboo crafts, paper cutting, and shadow puppetry. Thai fencer Bandita Srinalad、uh, was amazed by a Chinese traditional painting technique. This is the first time I saw this technique from the art, and I impressed that. So get to know more about China. Over 100 cultural institutions in Zhejiang have、uh, jointly organized over 5,300 Asian Games-themed cultural events, including music, dance, and theater. These events aim to share the region's cultural heritage and、uh, sentiments with visitors from around the world. The Beijing Hangzhou Grand Canal is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Wang Mengmeng visited Hangzhou and has more. Bridges are often seen by Chinese as symbols of connectivity, continuity, and harmony. Here I am on the Gongchen Bridge, the largest and oldest stone arch overpass in Hangzhou. Every step on it brings me back in time, as it bears witness to the rich history and evolution of the grandest of all canals. The water here flows northward all the way to Beijing, stretching some 1,800 kilometers and dating back 2,500 years. The Grand Canal is the longest and oldest artificial waterway in the world. Here, along the banks of the canal, you could find some of the artworks chronicling the changing cultural traditions down the ages. Modern artists are getting creative with the tales they grew up with, so that they could better preserve the heritage for future generations. Over the centuries, different art forms have flourished along the banks. Chinese opera experienced a boom after the Yuan Dynasty some 600 years ago, because the waterway allowed greater mobility, facilitating regular performances and exchanges. Its heritage is deeply embedded in the history and culture of the Grand Canal. UNESCO acknowledges that the Beijing-Hangzhou Grand Canal holds outstanding universal values. From ancient to modern-day China, it's always been a unifying and stabilizing factor. It's also created a way of life and a culture specific to the people who live along it. That was Wang Mengmeng reporting. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization TV Festival is kicked off in Nanjing. The festival has gathered over 150 guests from various media organizations from SEO member states. The festival includes events such as focused dialogues and an exhibition of TV technologies.
We're at 58 past the hour. Checking the forecast before we go for the day in Beijing's down to 13 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, sunny and 26 degrees Celsius. Chongqing's at 22 this evening, then moderate rainfall in 27. Last is down to 8. It'll be cloudy tomorrow in 23. Hong Kong's at 27 tonight. Showers in 31 tomorrow. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo's 23 this evening. A slight rain and 32 on Thursday. Islamabad will be 17 tonight, then sunny and 32. Bangkok's down to 25 degrees, then a light rain and 31 on Thursday. In Africa, Nairobi is getting a slight rain in 26 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 16 this evening, then a light rain in 22. Auckland's down to 11, a light rain in 15 tomorrow. Uh, Port Vila, a slight rain in 27 degrees Celsius. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, Saudi Arabia's first ambassador to Palestine's arrived in the West Bank. In Canada's parliamentary, speakers resigned amid a scandal involving a Nazi war veteran. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. <laughs>